welcome to Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum here at 90.3 The Court. I'm your host, James. And I'm your host, Sammy. And this week, we have two members from Students for Justice in Palestine. In recent weeks, the discussion around Palestine has reached a fever pitch in American mainstream media. After Congresswoman Ilhan Omar criticized the lobbying firm American Israel Public Affairs Committee, or otherwise known as APAC, she faced serious and intense backlash, with many people calling her comments incendiary and anti-Semitic. However, what got lost in this insane back and forth was the voice of the Palestinians, who have been violently oppressed and are facing the threat of ethnic cleansing by the Israeli regime. In many ways, this is because of Israel's actions that are completely indefensible and represent blatant violations of some of the most fundamental human rights. Just last week, Israeli rockets bombed Palestinians in Gaza, which is a region that exists as the largest open-air prison in So the fact is, Israel represents a settler colonial apartheid state, and this brutal oppression also affects people living in the broader Palestinian diaspora, including here at Rutgers. With a growing movement calling for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel, and a presidential administration that has made it crystal clear that the U.S. is and has never been an honest broker when it comes to this issue, it is vital that we move from this discussion from a framework of peace and compromise to one of justice and human rights. So let's start with um, the discussion around Ilhan Omar. Um, and SJP published a op-ed in the Targum, I believe last week or two weeks ago? Mm-hmm. Two weeks ago? Okay. Um, about the Congresswoman. Um, and one quote that I think was really powerful from the piece was, quote, the critiques of Omar are not about purging America of its anti-Semitism. It is about silencing any discussion of our relationship to Israel and its continuous illegal occupation of Palestine. So what are your general thoughts to the reactions around Ilhan Omar? I just find it very disturbing, mm-hmm. just all around. Um, I feel like it's a very convenient thing for the right wing. Um, Ilhan Omar represents an intersection of many identities, one being black, a, mo- a woman, and a Muslim um, in Congress. And that is a manifestation, I think, of the right wing's fears manifested into a single person. And I think they're directing all of that um, and sort of appropriating this anti-Semitic like, remark. It's a, a, a tactic that the right wing has adopted for quite some time in terms of silencing those who speak out against Israeli apartheid. Mm-hmm. So it's a very just disturbing conversation. Um, but I am, what I do think that the reactions to Elon Omar have also generated like other reactions to those reactions yeah. that have been quite also interesting throughout their process because people are really, really now talking about like APAC in a different way that I have never heard before. Yeah, so what's interesting about the criticisms of Ilhan Omar is that she made it clear that she is criticizing a lobby, a lobby that has influence in America. And just like the NRA, like they have money, they don't directly donate to politicians, but they have influence. And I think people took the general fear, I guess, of anti-Semitic language, which does exist, of like this idea that Jewish people run the world with money, which is completely false, of course, and weaponized it in her critique of an Israeli lobby, which are totally different things. Yeah, and she wasn't even really addressing the actual human rights violations of Israel. It was just right. the lobbying just firm like of, of, the country, of the state. So again, just a really interesting, I think, discussion around that. And then Lean Dweek, one of the leaders of NYU SJP, 
um, confronted Chelsea Clinton about her criticisms of Ilhan Omar, arguing that her rhetoric fed into a racist narrative that contributes directly to white nationalist terror attacks like the one in Christchurch, New Zealand. What did you think of that confrontation, and is that kind of strategy effective? I think Lean's confrontation was justified. She was a Palestinian woman who was mourning in the mm-hmm. wake of a lot of Palestinians were murdered in the Christchurch massacre as well. Um, and she was she saw an environment where people were uncomfortable with a public figure like Chelsea Clinton at this mourning space. And she has contributed to especially anti-Palestinian rhetoric. Um, and she was, I think, justified in confronting Chelsea Clinton. And a lot of people were criticizing Lean, saying like, oh, but she's a pregnant woman. How could you attack her? She is in the political sphere. Like, it's every person's duty, I think, to have these conversations with political or public figures. And I do think the strategy is effective, even though a lot of people showed their face in terms of if they're going to show compassion for a mourning Palestinian woman over a rich, very powerful Clinton, you know, in this situation. And Chelsea Clinton did nothing to kind of tell people to step back and stop attacking Lean. Lean has been really attacked online. And a lot of people have put her, written articles about her and put her on blacklist and things like that. And Chelsea did nothing to stop it. She did nothing to be like, oh, this Palestinian woman is grieving and she's talking to me about a serious matter that I can now confront and assess in myself. You know, and that's a major point of, like, it really bothered Lean. I've seen her Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, and she was justified in that, in my opinion, too. Yeah, and even her going on The View, like, this week, not even apologizing or addressing it directly at all. Yeah. Really telling. Yeah, the only response that I ever saw from Clinton in the matter was that we need to start listening to each other in a general sort of unity Clinton classic yeah. white fashion. <laughs> but, like, sort of what, what good would that do? Yeah, and then demonizing a Palestinian that tried to have a conversation like yeah it was a firm criticism but people really demonized the way that she approached the conversation they made it as if she was yelling if you watch the video it's not yelling at all no, no. no. yeah it's yeah and she wasn't <laughs> even cornered too she could have left yeah yeah there was a lot going on and I think there was a lot of hypocrisy around Christchurch too because you had Netanyahu tweet out support for the victims families when 19 of them I think were from were from Palestine yeah um so what are, what are the general thoughts, I think, about the hypocrisy around those kind of events? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of hypocrisy because people are very conditional in their um, empathy. So a lot people were making jokes about like, oh, Netanyahu's going to delete his tweets once he finds out they were Palestinian, you know, because like he's doing the same thing to Palestinians, but it's just this idea of like certain things that everyone can come together and like condemn it yeah i guess it's just conditional netanyahu like i think he's just trying to score political points because he's got this re-election coming up and he wants to sort of distance himself away from the right-wing alliances that he's made and he's faced a decent amount of backlash within israel itself for doing that and i think that him coming out like this and i think not just netanyahu but um the other republicans and right-wingers across the world have been saying that have been saying similar things just to score political points, and I think it's the same thing that we've seen not just in tragedies like New Zealand, but in other tragedies that have happened in the past couple of years. Yeah. But I also believe in the situation with New Zealand specifically, the like the amazing reaction from the New Zealand government in response to it, kind of it was like in forty eight hours yeah, or something. The yeah. laws changed, right. and the prime minister was very supportive of the victims' families and everything like that. And I think that that reaction put pressure on everyone every political leader to 
condemn the attack. Like, everyone was talking about the attack, but also Justine Jones' response was, like, we're going to look like a bad person if we don't say something about this attack, which is why it's so convenient for Anne Hathaway to get to say, like, oh, it's so unfair that this happened when he's doing much more than he has done. And also in the wake of um, Congressman Omar's comments, I I feel like the Zionist label has been thrown around casually forever, pretty much. Um, But it seems like people seem to really come together around that against her criticisms. What does Zionism mean to Palestinians? So the definition of Zionism kind of changed over time, I think, like how you were alluding to. And it started off as this idea that Jewish people should have their own state. And when they got that state with Israel, it has now turned into, of course, support for Israel and their apartheid and their illegal settlements and things like that. So to Palestinians, Zionism means being an apologist for their massacres and for their ethnic cleansing and their arrests and things like that. Um, And a problem that I really have with Zionism is that it's not the answer for Jewish people. The answer should always be eliminating anti-Semitism, not isolating Jewish people to their own country. And that country, you know, no land is an empty land. That country ends up ethnic cleansing, you know, separating people from their homeland. So Rutgers actually has a large Jewish and Zionist population. So after SJP wrote an op-ed supporting Omar, the Scarlet Knights for Israel wrote a response. So how important is it to have Jewish allies in the fight for justice? This, of course, is really important, and they're always there. We always have Jewish allies. They're part of SJP. They're part of Jewish Voice for Peace, which is another org that works really closely with us. Um, It's essential in liberation. Like, all people need to come together and combat Zionism and criticize Israel together. Um, And I think a lot of Jewish people support Palestinians, and especially among the youth, the, the climate is changing. A lot of support for Israel has gone down, and Jewish people are always my allies in that situation. Yeah, and there are even Jewish communities, outside of just uh, the Rutgers, but there are even Jewish communities that tend to be more conservative, which um, have rejected the state of Israel because of sort of like in the origins of Zionism or its connections to the Torah, they say that they, you can return to Israel once the Messiah has returned, but the Messiah has not returned. <laughs> and so the creation of the state of Israel is sort of like a false, it, it contradicts the Torah. And so they reject the creation of the state of Israel, and they stand in solidarity with Palestine and identify themselves as Palestinians. So it's quite, it's quite, yeah, like we need to have every single identity in the room. Like we, and it's not just about like a changeling identity, but it's about sort of, we're all in in this together. Yeah, and what I think is amazing also is that there are a lot of people in occupied Palestine in Israel who are against Israel. And I don't know if you saw yesterday or like a couple days ago, there was someone, a Taylor Swift fan account, yeah, that (laughs) tweeted like sorry I haven't updated in months I was in prison and someone was like why and she was like I refuse to join the IDF so now she's talking all about how the IDF is horrible and about how we need to stand with Palestinians so I think Jewish allies are everywhere and allies from every background are in this movement it's not just a Palestinian movement so how would you say that people who might not know about this situation how can they be more educated on it without saying the wrong things I think it's important to speak to Palestinians get our sides of the story, but also I think independent research is a tricky topic because a lot of media is biased, and that is changing to an extent, but it's important to just expose yourself to all of the narratives, and it's important to educate yourself on colonialism, what colonialism is, what apartheid is, um, things like that, those basic definitions 
will help you understand the situation of the Palestinians and with reoccupation? And what do you think? I think that, yeah, like the independent research is, again, like you had said, like a very tricky topic. Because like you're, if you're watching a Vox video <laughs> or the, the Vox video on like, Israel, like the Israeli <laughs> conflict, it's, it's the, the thing that you have to watch out for is that the, like the false equivalency and sort of saying that like both sides are equally as bad um, and there's no sort of like guilty factor. Or, and there are like, in, in my understanding of Palestine and the, and the conflict, for a long time, I, I used to be sort of like a two-state solution guy throughout high school because I thought that that was the option presented to me as the option for peace. It's really the only one, unless you go to like the far right and sort of saying that, oh yeah, like Palestine needs to be wiped out. Like that's the only option that you really get. And I didn't really have access to Palestinians in my community. But yeah, like in my education, it was mainly interacting with SJP, getting involved. Um, and sort of understanding just on the ground level, like what are the actual facts? Like what's the reality? Mm-hmm. Because it, the media seems makes it seem so disconnected. It's it's about like a couple thousand miles away, but we those effects are felt here, and you can feel them. You just have to look quite carefully. And I like what you said about false equivalency because a lot of people they hear things about the Middle East and they just don't want to bother with it, you know, so they don't take the time to yeah. listen. And I feel so like there's also a lot of assumptions. Yeah, a lot of assumptions, and when the media and when the West and when Zionists frame this as some sort of equal thing or like a war instead of oppression, that's how people get confused. They they think that Palestinians have certain resources that they don't and things like that, and they think it's just a battle, like that two sides hate each other instead of a federal colonial project and an apartheid state. As you were saying, much of the mainstream media in the U.S. supports what is known as a two-state solution and pushes the idea of two states for two people, as if Jewish people are a nation unto themselves, which again is pretty racist in itself as well too, um, and divorce from all other nations, and Palestinians are a nation unto themselves. But these people consistently fail to interrogate the fact that Palestine and Israel are not the same. On the one side, you have Palestine, which is based in geography and the people who live in Palestine, who have ancestors from Palestine. And on the other side, you have a religion, and sometimes ethnicity as well. Um, which is not place-based. So the idea that you can create some type of dividing line of two apparent peoples with equal claims to the land is both impractical and ahistorical. And in addition, it's pretty clear that Israel doesn't even want a two-state solution and has created the facts on the ground to make it absolutely impossible. So what are the other problems you see um, with the framing of a two-state solution? I see it as a problem because I don't understand what statehood would do for Palestinians, especially with what we have right now. So there's the West Bank and the Gaza that are technically Palestinian, and I don't understand how having those two states, which are cut off from each other, you know, like the West Bank and Gaza, they can't go to each other, they can't travel to each other. I don't know what that accomplishes. It doesn't accomplish anything. And sure, it would maybe hopefully help prevent illegal annexation of more territories in the West Bank, but it's not liberation, it's not freedom. And there are Palestinians throughout occupied Palestine in Israel that are subject as, like they're second class citizens. So Mm -hmm. you could either be a second class citizen in Israel or you're in the West Bank and Gaza and you're totally cut off from resources and things like that. So I don't see what a two-state solution accomplishes. I believe in a one-state solution where all people are free and have dignity and there's equal representation and things like that. You know, So if you don't want one state where everyone is free and equal, 
then you've just one more problem. You you don't support the empathy, the humanity of the Palestinian community. Mm-hmm. I also think that, I think you reject sort of the foundations of where you even founded the state on. I think yeah. you reject that the three major religions all have ties to the land, all have spiritual ties yeah. to that land. And I think that to sort of divide it up and bomb it is I think the most disgusting thing that you could do. It's the most morbid thing. And like, it, it shows like a gross un- misunderstanding of your own faith. And I think that framing, like the religious framing, comes in between the two state solution. I also believe in a one state and a one state that unites all people who live on that land um, under a common identity. But yeah. Um, I like what you said about that. And I also just think it's like, you were talking about like the ties to the land and things like that. But it also, having a two-state solution ignores the colonial background mm-hmm. of the foundation of Israel. You mm-hmm. know, like, if we have these two states, all of a sudden, that means Palestinians don't have any claim to what is now Israel, you know? So mm-hmm. it still ties people off from their ancestral lands, you know? Like, I have family members who are from what is now Israel, but no one can go there. It's depopulated. A lot of villages have been depopulated. To, so a two-state solution ignores the ethnic cleansing, the Nakba of Palestine, um, and it's it's Palestinian land, it's Palestinian history, so yeah, it would legitimize Israel. A two-state solution legitimizes the human rights abuses that Israel has gotten away with so far. And it's also not like a one-state solution hasn't, hasn't worked in the past, because Jewish people have lived in Palestine peacefully historically yeah. under the same government, under the same rule. Historically, a one-state solution has worked in the past, um, you know, Jewish people and Palestinians have lived in that area peacefully for generations before um, British imperialism. And you can kind of talk more about that if you want. Yeah, so from what I've heard in Nekba stories uh, from older Palestinians is that a lot of Jewish people before the state of Israel considered themselves Palestinians as well. And some of them didn't, and they just emigrated to Palestine um, to be closer to the Holy Land for them. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Like, as you said, that works, you know? There's there's no gatekeeping for the Palestinian identity and things like that. Um, and Jewish people can be in the Holy Land. Like, it's the Abrahamic religion's Holy Land. And it's not about that. It's about, like, a colonial project. It's about apartheid and settlements and things like that. So that's the issue with Israel. Mm-hmm. It's not. So we were talking before about how Zionism is a dangerous kind of methodology and, and rhetoric too. Um, so obviously like Rutgers is a very Zionist campus. There's a lot of Jewish organizations. It's difficult to go around campus without seeing birthright trip posters and different types of propaganda, propaganda. I would say. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how does SJP aim to kind of protect your members from that kind of language and what are the difficulties in organizing on this kind of campus with such kind of entrenched Zionist ideology? I think one of the biggest difficulties is that the majority of the Jewish orgs on campus are Zionist. Mm-hmm. And so that if you ever want to actually have like interfaith dialogue and not one, you can't have it without having Zionism in the room. Yeah. Right. There's like, I think one Jewish or a queer Jewish caucus that is the only like n- not explicitly Zionist uh, Jewish organization on campus. And so we have to go to uh, Jewish Voices for Peace, an organization that operates in central Jersey. And so that we're, New Brunswick is under that jurisdiction. So that's one of the, I think, the biggest difficulties if, as interacting with, because we do want to break that like barrier. We do want, like, there, 
and this is uh, I've talked to some Jews on campus that aren't really aware of the, the issue. They're just sort of just like like unaware. Um, and they get like it's sort of like this like they get swept in. Like they want they identify with being Jewish, but then they get swept into the Zionism. And when they really didn't want to, and so now they don't really they they occupy this weird middle space, mm-hmm. where they don't really know where to. They are uncomfortable fully identifying with Zionism. So that's one of the the difficulties I think for organizing um, in that respect. But uh, what were you going to say? Um, well, going off of what you were saying, with Jewish students at Rutgers who are explicitly anti-Zionist, then they feel like they don't have a space on campus. So we want to make sure that they know that they have a space with us at SJP. SJP is definitely their space. Um, but in terms of, I guess, just our day-to-day activism and things like that, there is a lot of pushback from Zionists on campus. They try to intimidate us. I've had instances where we're trying to do something outside for Palestine and Zionists are harassing us verbally and sometimes physically. Um, and there's also just a security threat in other ways too, not just the verbal and physical. There's also a sort of surveillance of Palestinian activists on campus. So Palestine advocates at Rutgers are in a unique position where, as activists, we're subject to Rutgers' strict protest policies, where we have limited options to begin with. And then we have a lot of Zionist, powerful Zionist organizations on campus that are watching us, documenting what we're doing, threatening us, things like that. And it makes it difficult. It does intimidate people, but we're not intimidated by that. But it intimidates people from joining the movement, and it adds to the confusion of Palestine advocacy at Rutgers. Yeah, as a result of that, we've had to like pretty much encrypt all of our communications. We're pretty much like we can't be as public as we want to, and that's like the the problem. I think it's one of the reasons why we can't share our names like in this interview. And then also, uh, BDS has been uh, a huge movement globally, and on many college campuses as well. Um, I know NYU in the fall pushed hard. Um, to get their um, school to divest from all Israeli investments. And what has the history of BDS been at Rutgers? And again, what are the complications when there are such, when there is such a large Jewish population here um, with trying to divest from Israel? And explain also what BDS is, too, because I think that's so. Boycott, divestment, and sanctions is a nonviolent movement to basically put pressure on Israeli occupation and Israeli apartheid by threatening them economically. Um, And a lot of people are so against BDS, even though it leaves Palestinians with no options, because you don't want us to resist in any form in that case. If we have such a, it's modeled after South African apartheid's movement of divesting from South African apartheid. And by the way, Rutgers did divest from uh, apartheid South Africa in, I think it was 1986, 1986. Um, So in terms of Palestinians, it's... It's a growing and powerful movement, and I think as diaspora Palestinians, in as in Palestinians who are not in Palestine, it's something that we can do. It's on a consumer level, not purchasing certain products. It's also on pressuring your university to divest from settlements and from the government and things like that. So like the purpose of BDS is to end Israeli apartheid, but through nonviolent economic ways. And then also saying you're not going to participate in that apartheid. Yes, either. so it's also a cultural thing, yeah. too. Like, artists like Lord have backed mm-hmm. out of concerts in Israel mm-hmm. in respecting the Palestinian call for boycott, yeah. um, just so as not to legitimize and normalize the occupation and apartheid. Um, so in terms of Rutgers, I think, just like any university and any SJP, 
Um, we fully support BDS. It's something that we can all do and we would like everyone to get educated and participate in. Um, I don't know necessarily the history because it's not a long history, but it's a powerful one. A lot of universities are starting to divest and a lot are passing resolutions for BDS, but their universities are not enacting them and they don't respect their students, you know, their wishes. They're going through all the right channels. Students are, you know, lobbying or whatever. They're talking to their representatives as student government representatives, and they're writing resolutions and passing them, but a lot of universities don't respect that um, because of the, just the import, the economic importance of Israel and America's relationship. What is the relationship that SJP has with RUSA? And this is just, I think, a criticism, not just in SJP, but I think all activist circles with RUSA. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We have seen, there have been, there was like this one activist ticket that did run, and they did get some things done. And, but like, RUSA, one, has a very heavy Zionist presence. Um, I've had conversations with individuals in RUSA that have told me that BDS will never pass, um, and they're sympathetic to the cause. And so RUSA, for not just SJP, but for all activist circles, has by and large been kind of a waste of time. It's not where the power is, RUSA... Um, where any decision-making, that's essentially the, the resolution. They're just pieces of paper that sort of say that we should do this, but there's no binding action. And that usually happens in RU Senate or the Board of Governors or Trustees, and any student voices in the Board of Governors or the Trustees are non-voting. Yeah. So they have no power. So we have been creatively trying to find different approaches to sort of like put pressure onto the administration and activists. But the role that RUSA does have um, for activists and SJP um, is like when they have town halls, that's when we can put pressure on administration directly, face to face. It also brings sort of like in terms of like the awareness and outreach. Um, if something happens at RUSA, everyone knows what happens at RUSA. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that RUSA has an advantage of. But in terms of actually going into RUSA, and I think we've seen it in other campaigns, if you go through regular channels, you get it passed to the resolutions, it doesn't mean that divestment or sanctions or boycotts will happen. Because the university doesn't respect student resolutions. So it's such a shame that a lot of universities, such as Rutgers, don't give students actual power. We have power when we come together, but it's not given to us by the university. We don't have an official um, means of being heard and enacting things that we believe in. And they would like us to believe that RUSA is that, but it's not. Yeah. And I also think BDS highlights a lot of the corporate interests that are involved in perpetuating apartheid. Because you have companies like Caterpillar bulldozers that are being used to bulldoze Palestinian homes, like as we speak, not and, just uh, Palestinian homes, Palestinian people, yeah. and allies that yeah. have gone there. Rachel Corey, Rachel Corey, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. She was a senior in college um, back in two thousand and three, um, who went over there to Rafa, I think, yeah, for her senior trip to kind of. For a project between her town and her sister city, which was Ratha in Palestine. And she was standing in front of a Palestinian home and was bulldozed by an IDF bulldozer that was given to them by Caterpillar. Um, So there are all of these corporate interests involved in this oppression and apartheid as well. So it's important to recognize that, I think. So, yeah, we... In our own research, we did find out that Rutgers itself, in their long-term investments, has holdings... um, Directly, like we, they have holdings in Israeli Construction Group, which um, is a large construction conglomerate in Israel that contributes to the construction of like these settlements. Coca Cola is a huge one on this campus. You'll see it everywhere. Our organizations, like we can't even get drinks that are not from Coca Cola. So we don't have drinks at our events and meetings because we participate in boycott. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, those are what were the other? There was, there was also like I think it was a some sort of real estate company that works in illegal settlements mm-hmm. that Rutgers is invested in, and also they're invested in um, in Israeli National Bank, right? Yeah, they have direct holdings in the state treasury of Israel. Wow. Yeah. And this account, their long-term investments, their account is over a billion dollars. So yeah, and this is um, this has been some interesting work in terms of diving into these investments because one, these records are not like we had to go through different channels to get them through Oprah requests and stuff. Mm-hmm. And we have a luxury um, as being a public university that we can get these yeah. records. Mm-hmm. NYU, other universities that are private don't have that luxury. They can sort of hide behind the private institution and sort of say we don't have to disclose any of our investments. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have some sort of privilege there. But it's interesting because we're not even finding like some of the like there's huge energy investments so that connects us to the Harvard divestment uh, fossil fuel divestment campaign. Mm-hmm. They literally have a section just of energy investments and it's all oil um, or coal. I think while is the Israeli occupation of Palestine represents a unique kind of brutal oppression, there are also many other victims across the world of settler colonialism and imperialism. And how does SJP kind of connect with those narratives and develop, you know, this truly anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist framework? So we we connect, we view it as a, it, it, it's sort of being represented in that panel that we're having on April 8th, mm-hmm. on sort of fighting fascism. And we view this sort of Israeli apartheid as a form of fascism in the same way that how we connected specifically into that event is we connected to Duterte and his regime in the Philippines, mm-hmm. and sort of saying that what's interesting is the Foreign Services Committee in the Senate appropriates aid to both the Philippines and Israel, and both of the senators that sit on that are both New Jersey senators. Wow. And so they appropriate over, I think I think it's over a billion dollars for Israel, and I think a quarter, uh, a quarter of a billion dollars to um, the Philippines. And so we are seeing uh, like that there are one, capital connections, to these regimes in terms of our government and our tax dollars funding these regimes. But it's part of a part of a broader struggle against fascism all over the world is that we fighting these battles individually in terms of their own sort of identities is what these what the what the capitalists want. Um, is essentially they want us to be divided amongst our identity and not come together and unite against these oppressive regimes around the world. And so how we do it is how we we connect and sort of say that the Palestinian liberation struggle is connected to the Filipino liberation struggle, which is also connected to the black liberation struggle, but right here within America. Um, I think it was said, I think we went to a conference, someone that said it to me, beautifully said, was that the key to Palestinian liberation is the black, the liberating the United States. And the way to liberate the United States is to liberate black people. Yeah. And also indigenous people, too. Because, yeah. you know, I see a lot of connections between how the U.S. dealt with Native Americans in the 18th and 19th centuries pretty much saying that, you know, we're negotiating in good faith while simultaneously colonizing their land. Um, it's just that there's so many, like, different connections you can make yeah, with this. And it's important to point those connections out, especially yeah. because we, as, again, diaspora or just Palestine advocates in the United States, we are on indigenous land, and this is a settler colony. Mm-hmm. You know, like, the United States is a settler colony. A lot, almost the entire world was colonized, but there are only a handful that were settler colonies. And the United States is one of them, and we need to reconcile with the fact that this is Native American land and not America. (laughs) Not American land. (laughs) Um, And that puts people like me who were born and raised in the United States in a weird identity situation, too, because you need to stand with indigenous people everywhere 
while also being an indigenous person yourself, but also being on someone's land. So you have to reconcile like these different identities. Like, am I someone else's settler when I am fighting other settlers? You know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just important that we always elevate every voice and connect all of our struggles and stand in solidarity together. What is your vision of the future for Palestine? And where do you hope this whole kind of movement goes to? I think our vision is the liberation of Palestine. We would like Palestinians to have dignity and for, you know, the complete end of human rights abuses against us, no more ethnic cleansing and a one state where everyone is equal. And I think that's really important and I think it's tangible and I think we could all come together and do that. And like we were talking about BDS, BDS is a really powerful way to get involved from America in the liberation for Palestinians. So how do you think universities can help implement solidarity through its transparency with students? And I think making it far easier to disclose their investments. Um, it's it, like it, it's a public university, but it's still paying to get them. Yeah. Um, and so that would be one. But I think that it's also like, yeah, like just more transparency in terms of like the meetings and like what decisions they're making in those meetings. And I think that just not contributes to one our struggle, but I think one the larger struggle of the uh, are you ready to strike with the union is that yeah. Yeah. we, they are struggling, like faculty and staff and student workers are all struggling with the fact that the administration has been pushing their wages down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that decision making process is something they're absent from. It's only when they come to the negotiating table if they come to the negotiating table. Yeah. Um, so if we can become more involved in that decision-making process as students, as activists, then I think that would help in terms of the campus. But And also just not having such strict restrictions on student activists. Like, even if there is transparency, we still have the strict protest policy, things like yeah. that. There's such a harsh blowback against student activists at Rutgers. So... Rutgers needs to change that. Like, yeah. we need to come together yeah, and make like, sure that happens. Um, I think last year, some students got arrested. Yes. From UCES. Yeah. yeah. I think it was 10 or 12. 12. 12 yeah. UCES. Yeah, members were arrested and charged. With, yeah, um, and a couple others were then suspended for a semester. Yeah. Right. And Rutgers is completely complicit in that, and they're censoring us and mm-hmm. our work in that sense, you know? Yeah, because that has scared a lot of activists mm-hmm. in terms of, like, engaging in the direct action. We've now gone through the more traditional means, but we also now that those traditional means can be sort of like a grind, like a bureaucratic grind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So um, how can students get involved in SJP and any upcoming events that you have? To get involved with SJP, you can email us at sjp.rutgersnb at gmail.com and all of our social medias are sjprutgersnb if you'd like to get involved that way and reach out to us. We would love to have as many voices as possible in our movement. Thank you so much for coming on here today. Thank you for Um, having us. Thank you. This has been Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum for 90.3 The Court.